You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to TNT. Today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're in the second hour of this live broadcast. Thank you, everybody, for rejoining us. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're tuning in from, we really, really appreciate your listenership here. A great segment from Christian before the break. Obviously, Christian's always giving us a little update on what's happening politically uh, in the UK, especially. This is where he has most of his ears on the ground. Um, but we're going to do a radical sort of pivot right now uh, in the second hour and possibly into the third hour, depending on how long our next guest is able to stick with us. And uh, our next guest is uh, a political commentator. If you're in London and there's a place called Speaker's Corner, and traditionally this is one of the only places or it's always been sort of recognized or protected as a absolute free speech zone and and the top of Hyde Park where Marble Arch meets Hyde Park. And our next guest is a fic- has been a regular fixture for a very long time at Speaker's Corner. His name is Heiko Koo. And uh, we have spoken in the past. Uh, we had an interview uh, during the sort of lockdown COVID period, which was a great discussion. And uh, obviously, Heiko's got a lot to add and contribute on the geopolitical side. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine, about China. But uh, first, Let's just get their introductions uh, out of the way. Hello, Heiko. How are you doing? Hi there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been speaking at Speaker's Corner since 19, the very end of 1985. And uh, pretty much every week, apart from when I was abroad, I spoke there. And my main sort of political interest has been, well, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Marxist of sorts, although that will no doubt get people's backs up. But uh, not, or not by, at all. We hopefully, go. by the end of the <laughs> by the end of an hour, that will have changed a bit. Um, uh, but I'm an advocate of free speech. Speaker's Corner is actually more about the right to speak than free speech. It's not about what you say. You're not specifically excluded from any laws, you know, for for blasphemy or whatever, you know, incitement or, 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 or incitement or, yeah. or, or you know anything like that or or, or te- threats of terrorism or something like that. But you, you, you have the right to stand up and speak, or at least you did have the right to stand up and speak until the coronavirus uh, dictatorship. And then it was forbidden for a number of months, and we fought a battle to maintain Speaker's Corner during that period. And my main political interest has been on, um, on China. I, I used to write for a Chinese government website, the sort of Chinese BBC um, is that the Global Times? No, it's called China.org.cn. It's 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 a website of the State Council, so it's the government uh, a website. But uh, I had an opinion column with them, and I was really you'd be surprised to hear I was relatively free to write what I like. But they, but if when they didn't like something, they basically just stop you from publishing. They just don't even explain why. They just don't publish it, and that's basically happened to me over the last two years. So I haven't really had anything published by them since since the summer of 2020. Um, there's been a tightening up in general over there um, of alternative views, um, which was less the case a few years back. But now Xi Jinping and his entourage have got a bit more tight control over what's going on. Do, do you think that coincided with the whole COVID era, that, that sort of tightening up there? It was actually a bit before that. It, it was when uh, within in about the first two years of Xi Jinping's rule, they began to tighten up. And, and it's not even because there are people sitting there, ideologues sitting there thinking this can't be written or that can't be written. But for example, 
one of the first articles that they that I was surprised that they didn't publish was when Donald Trump was elected and 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 it was then I I wrote something very like making a lot of fun out of him and um they didn't like that and they didn't like it I presume because the mindset is this if you that that if you can read that in the press in China or in the media in China does it imply that a Chinese journalist can say the same thing about Xi Jinping. Ah. So that's where the mindset comes from. It doesn't come from anything explicitly opposed to what I said. It's just about what if the same thing was said here. And and therefore, you know, and then it is true also that falsely everything published in the Chinese press is interpreted in the West as the official voice of China, which is not. But but people interpret it that way. And therefore, mm, the editors for fear of losing their job or getting come back will simply err on the verge of caution and it's become more and more and more cautious. That's basically what it is, which means people don't, don't talk about the issues that need to be talked about. No, look, I know a lot of people that wrote for the global times, you know, you know, right. that website yep. and they, the stuff that they got published, it really unbelievable, really criticizing lockdowns and things like, but then they kind of tightened up on some of that at some point. Yeah. And so, you know, but then they say, oh, that's state censorship. But, you know, is it any different than the sort of stories that get spiked at the Guardian every week or that don't get printed in the mail or that don't get on the BBC? What There's no difference, right? The difference is to some degree in China, there's a consistency to the way that they'll function. And it's the same in terms of interpretation and reading of the news. I mean, I was trained up to read the East German newspapers and understand what they were trying to say, read the Chinese newspapers and try and read between the lines. And that was the phrase everybody used. You know, you knew that if this member of the Politburo stood um, next to Eric Honecker every month and then suddenly he was moved to to, two positions next to him in the photograph that you knew he'd been downgraded and was about to take a fall or something like that. So there was a Sovietology that used to be able to use to interpret the news. And actually, the East German newspapers, although it was quite scant in the, in the detail, did have pretty much the same stuff in, the, in in terms of if you knew how to interpret what was being said, you could understand what was going on, as well as you can understand, for example, in Britain, what's going on when you've got leadership candidates talking bullshit in, in, in public to each other and the press talking nonsense. And the press running around for, I mean, one is with the COVID dictatorship, just swallowing every single falsehood and nonsense and lie and presenting that as truth and on the other side mystifying the population with nonsense i mean absolute nonsense i mean i took one example this morning i saw there was a story a couple of days ago thames has dried up um for the first time ever at the source and it's it's five miles down the road the furthest has ever been and today i just made a quick check on it myself I did my own little fact check and in 2003, it was 10 miles down. I mean, it's just preposterous. And, and it's always moving. There is no actual specific source. There, there's a stone that was put there, started in the 17th century or something like that, where people said that was the source, but it's not actually the source. There's multiple sources. Yeah. So it's just an example of the nonsense. And, and journalists get away with that type of crap. You know, they like to sit at home, get a publish a stupid article that, 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 gets, that, that is hair-raising. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's the... Bottom line: When you fit in the parameters of what's accepted, and then you publish something hair-raising, and then it, then it, and the models say, experts say, and that's the that's the way they operate. So the Chinese press doesn't really work like that, and it's not a free press at all. That's perfectly true, 
But having said that, regional journalists and local journalists, they will try to do investigative stuff on issues that they think they can get away with it on. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those, peculiar enough, and I think we did discuss this at the time when we were last did an interview, one of those, peculiar enough, was exposition of maltreatment by medical authorities and hospitals. And there were huge protests in China for a period of nearly 20 years. And it's still my contention that the reason why Wuhan lockdown had nothing to do with COVID-19, it was entirely political. It was a decision taken because they feared that that type of unrest would explode in the urban areas because the urban masses, the majority of the urban population is now migrant workers who've moved to the city in the last 30 years. And those people were extremely angry at the lack of medical facilities. And so their tension about these issues exploded onto the scene. And that's why the government locked down. And that's the primary reason. Well, we'll get, we'll come back onto that. And we've got just a minute left. We're going to go to break with the network in a minute, but uh, speaker's corner, you had the anniversary recently, didn't you? Yeah, it was the 50th anniversary of the legalization of speaker's corner. So a number of people came down and, and made speeches I, I mean, some a lot of people focus on this thing about free speech, but actually, as I said, the, one of the experts who came along and written a thesis about PhD, a PhD on Speaker's Corner, he explained that it's actually about the right to speak more than anything else. So, yeah. And I think that's more important. The free speech, in any case, is always, you know, it's a moot point, isn't it? And in, yeah. in each circumstance, it depends on, you know, who, where you are and who you're with and so on. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The right to speak. Yeah, free speech just gets bandied around as a term and it's almost like kind of loses meaning because it is so relative to the, to the environment, the situation. Yeah. But but the right to speak. Yeah. That's the important bit. That was the essence yeah. of it, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So speakers, I mean, for those people listening, some of you listening, you've probably been to London, you've been to the UK, wherever you are in the world, Speakers Corners, world famous. Uh, it's one of the one of the great places where you can go and just go from point to point and get something fairly unfiltered. Um, you know, we agree with it or not, it's going to be unfiltered. Yeah, madness and to yeah, madness it, unleashed. It is, it's <laughs> it's like the yeah, it's it's Hobbes' state of nature um, <laughs> on the pavement. So where Marble Arch and High Park Corner meet, but uh, yeah, that's that's it's a great place. It's a great tradition, and uh, you know, it it needs to be preserved obviously because the day that and it did get snuffed out as you said during the lockdown um that's you know, all, all of a sudden the right to speak was no longer you know completely immutable uh, exceptions were made because of the quote pandemic and we need to guard against that we need to sort of be very very vigilant to make sure that mm, this doesn't become the status quo uh but look we're going to take a short break here with tnt today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. I'm here in studio with Heiko Koo, our special guest this afternoon. We'll be right back after these messages from the network. Government is no longer working to protect our shared heritage, institutions, culture, and way of life. We're watching their deliberate destruction and dismantling, ready for replacement with something else. What might that be? Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's news talk. We're into the second hour of this live broadcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hennings, and thank you, everybody, for joining us. And uh, we're very pleased to be joined in studio by a very special guest, Heiko Ku. He's a political commentator. He's an activist. He's also a uh, uh, upholding the heraldry of, of free speech and the right to speak, uh, if regular fixture at the legendary location known as 
Speaker's Corner in central London, a place where you go for unfiltered conversations. It's a bit like we were saying uh, uh, in the break, yeah, this Hobbesian's uh, state of nature in terms of a forum. So you never know what you're going to get down there. It's yeah, yeah, completely sure. unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> so have you, you, you've been down there speaking. Have you ever gotten to a situation at Speaker's Corner where, you know, you're on your soapbox? Is that the, the, that's, you still use that term, right? Yeah, but it's the latter, yeah. The latter. And then, <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's a few people around, and all of a sudden, the, the crowd starts growing a bit more than you expected. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you've got a mass of people you're talking to. Yeah, you panic. What's that like? I mean, because it goes from talking to maybe half a dozen people to a couple of hundred. Yeah. What's that like? What, what, it, does it, does the dynamic change? We, yeah, it changes completely the dynamic. I mean, you get a lot of the nature of speaking, public speaking like that in the open air where you've got a completely random audience. It's about an interaction with you and the audience and your internal geist, you know, your spirit, what's moving you, you know. I mean, that's partly why I think a lot of the Christians think they're being moved by God, you know what I mean? You stand up there and you, you're not writing something down and thinking out what you're going to say. It just moves you and you move with what you, what you feel is appropriate to say. And the audience, the feedback, visual feedback from the eyes and faces and expressions of the audience will can strengthen the emphasis that you're putting on things. In particular, for example, in times of very sharp conflict. So, for example, the time of the first Iraq war, the time of the Afghan war, the time of the um, uh, the, the whole COVID dictatorship, of course, circumstances like that, you, there'll be moments where you've, you've, you've done a fair bit of research, you start speaking about something and the crowd will, will, will become larger and larger and larger. Although you, that would tend to be when you're not doing so much interaction. It's not so close an interaction. It's more of a, you, you, you make a number of statements and then a few people will respond. Generally, there might be one or two hostile people and then the audience will be swayed with you. So it's like that, you know, shifting sands in the, in, in the mindset and discussion that's taking place. And then you will find sometimes that the crowd gets pretty large, you know. You, you can get a couple of hundred people. I remember Lord Soper speaking many years ago. He was a, a Methodist um, preacher who was also a labor lord. And he was very sort of grassroots Christian socialist, if you like. But he had a very Shakespearean language. And, and at one time I remember seeing him gather about 500 people standing just just he spoke a bit separate from everybody else so that's an advantage in that way but it can be done you know and, and you can transpose those skills you learn at speaker's corners elsewhere yeah i noticed that as soon as you start um you, you, when you get an exchange with somebody even if it's adversarial that's when other people's attention starts you know refocusing yeah, they'll move sure. away from another person and come a little closer because they want to hear the interplay yeah, yeah and then sure. and then the people gather and then like you're you're so right that uh when you're speaking to a crowd and you're feeling it you're compelled to to move with that there's there is it's hard to explain yeah but there's a kind of a, a current right that's yeah. that's flowing yeah. and you almost feel like um you're riding you're riding it and when you're surfing it you're not thinking Exactly. It's not a rehearsed yeah, thing. Yeah, it's mass psychology, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and the actor game, but also mass psychology, because you're not going to a script. Yeah. So some people do go to a script. And then they're kind of like the Brechtian actor. Brecht spoke in one poem about to, to, in Copenhagen, I think it was, to students there. 
about how they should learn to act. And he was saying, you know, impersonate the the street market seller who's trying to sell you something who really knows what they're doing because they do have a framework where they can deviate at any moment. Any question comes that they can deviate and move off another direction and return to the thematic. So that's one method that can be used to, if you like, um, channel that in a specific direction, but it's still you being moved when you're, when you, when you're deviating, when you're changing, when you're, when you're relating to the crowd outside of that framework. Oh, the, you know, the barrel boy, the, you know, the, yeah. it's an art. Yeah, exactly. It's an art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the carnival barker, but especially the market traders. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're, they're selling, they're entertaining. They're trying to attract uh, attention. Yeah. But they have to sort of, you know, they got product they need to move. Yeah. But it's not just about selling their product; it's about creating the atmosphere. Yeah, they got to mesmerize a bit. <laughs> yeah. I used to live. On, I used to live above uh, North End Road Market. Oh yeah. On in Fulham and back before it got gentrified. Yeah. And uh, I was always amazed at some of, the, especially the guys. They travel all the way from, you know, deepest North London every uh, morning, uh, or they're from uh, Essex, and different people working these different markets around London. They're not all from the same place yep. where they work. And, yep. but the, the, the communication skills are unparalleled. Yeah. yeah. Like mm-hmm. they can communicate and, and they know exactly who they're talking to all the time. And they are people who are quoting literature. They're, they, they're, they're versed in poetry. Mm. They know, like you said, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd be surprised. It sounds like a working class barrel boy or whatever, but there's, there's a lot of depth there politically as well. Funny enough, it used to be, Years ago in the early 80s or late 80s, sorry, it used to be that there were quite a few, two or three speakers who were newspaper salespeople because in those those days you'd actually have to sell the newspaper. So they would sell the evening standard and they would learn all the headlines and they would literally sort of speak in headlines. Yeah. You know. Barker, there was one and there was another one, uh, Peter England, who just messed around and he basically just argued that England is the best country in the world and then he just challenged everybody. England is the best. <laughs> challenge anyone to challenge me on that. And then people would come out, you know, Germany, you from where are you from, sir? From Germany? Oh right. Well we smash you in the World Cup, didn't we? Like that. And that's all that sort of thing. <laughs> America, they dropped more bombs on Vietnam than the whole world in the Second World War. And they came back uh, uh, and they uh, and they still lost. Like that, you know, it's all that sort of stuff, you know. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've seen. I, I can see that. Especially London's very international. So people, you get you get people from every, pretty much every country in the world. Yeah, yeah. At Speaker's Corner. Yeah, and including countries that are getting bombed by by the U.S. Or yeah, Britain. you have a higher preponderance of uh, of Arabs and Muslims than you would naturally in the general population. That's partly because um, the local area is a high density of Middle Eastern Arabic, North, yeah. Ameri- North African countries. So the Edgware Road area is one of the Middle Eastern areas. And so you do have a certain higher propensity there because of that. Yeah, they call it Little Kuwait. Yeah. Uh, Edgware <laughs> Road, yeah. yeah. No, definitely. So that, that just adds to the spice, doesn't it, of the atmosphere and the inter the interplay. Um, it been- does. It's a, it, a lot of people do complain about that and say, oh, well, it's been taken over by the, by the Muslims and so on. Well, you know, I mean, that's, it's partly true, not taken over, but there's a large preponderance of them. But really, it's down to other people to turn up and speak themselves. You know, that's that's the way around that. I think it gives it, that that element that you just talking about the the amount of people from the Middle East or North Africa that are there that gives a kind of an, an, the, 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 the international the geopolitical dimension to Speaker's Corner that helps that come out. I think true, but there haven't been many people. There, there are occasionally like there's a Filipino group that was coming to about the election recently. There have been groups from 
South America will turn up for an individual issue, but they don't make it their platform, whereas it would be logical for them to stand up and speak about their platform. But it tends to be, rather than politics, it tends to be that a lot of people are speaking, are motivated to speak more about religion than about politics. There are a few political speakers, myself included, but not that many. Have, have you ever seen uh, Ishmael Blagrov? Yeah, yeah, I know Ishmael, yeah. It, it's, 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 we started about the same time. Yeah, he, he's he's pretty captivating. Yeah, very powerful speaker. He pulls the audience in, and he'll, he used to start up. I mean, he stopped now, but he used to start up with um, all the other speakers can go home because I've got the loudest voice. Now. <laughs> you know, speakers' corner can take over by religious nutcases and you know, sort of things like that. You know. Yeah, you got a book. I think you just got a book out now. Um, I saw it's a fantastic book. He's promoting it. What's it called? Is it the front line? The front line, and it's yeah. an extraordinary book. Um, it's got a section on Speaker's Corner, um, and it's the history of Notting Hill. But what he's done is he's done lots of interviews with people from the community. He obviously knew a lot of people in that community, like really close, really well, really well. You know, several hundred people he must have known around the area there. Um, and he interviewed them over many years the old timers, the young'uns and so on. And then he just found the thematics. So let's say Notting Hill Carnival, how it started, or there's a guy called Michael X who hung up with Malcolm X and used to be a sort of, um, used to be a thug for, for, the, for the worst landlord in London. The, the um, what's his name? The Rackman used to be a thug to get his money. And he became... Um, Anyway, so so he, he had people talking. He interviewed all these people, and then he sliced together the pieces that these people had said about this theme and put this together in the book. And it makes a fantastic story. It's like a reading a play, you know. Yeah. Bit of history as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, living history, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, wanna, I wanna definitely want to check that. He'd be, he'd be a fascinating interview. Unfortunately, he's in Cuba now, but you might catch him. But I don't think he likes to do anything public anymore. yeah. Yeah, That's the thing he basically was saying, I'm retiring now, going to Cuba, running some sort of I can't remember what type of center it was, some sort of center over there, and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> powerful, um, absolutely powerful speaker. Yeah, tremendous speaker. Yeah, yeah. If you've ever ever had the pleasure of uh, witnessing him in full flow, yeah, it's it's quite a thing, <laughs> force of nature, I, I think. Yeah, but um, look, um, on, on this issue of uh, of COVID, of lockdowns and things like that, um. I know we've spoke about this in the past. What 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 are your what are your feelings on this? Looking back, because you know, it seems free. Everyone seems to be kind of you know unchained a little bit. Things seem to be functioning. I see a few masks around, not too much, but the reminders are all there. The COVID test centers are around. <laughs> there's there's signage around. Yeah. There's still a kind of COVID infrastructure that's kind of latent. Yeah. What are your feelings on this now? We're in when summer of 2022. Anything could happen in the winter. We don't know where this government is going to go. Much like the Chinese government or any other government, this government in the UK uh, and like Germany and France, they like the crisis because the crisis affords them some additional powers that are no longer you know, available if there's no crisis going on. So every government is loves loves this sort of uh you know emergency state of emergency it allows governments to do things that they normally could never get away with so you know what are your general feelings on this now in this kind of lull period um governments is one side of the issue and then the bureaucracy is the other other side and, and, and that's what i was sort of trying to focus on 
in my own research on this question, how the bureaucracy related to it, so how the state bureaucracies related to this enormous power grab or power and authority that was given to them to make decisions over people, whether it be putting idiotic signs up on the streets. I saw one just this morning, actually, funny enough. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said something like, um, COVID-19, Warwick Way closed. Like, as if it was, that, you'd even imagine. That's over in Pimlico. Yeah, something just over here. I mean, it's just a like road closure. They've still got it on the street, the sign. Still. But it must have been put there in early 2020. I saw that a year ago. basically just says, COVID-19, Warwick Way closed, as though there's a connection, you know. Yeah, road There's closure. an outbreak there or something <laughs> like that, yeah. And they did, and the, all these barriers that they put on the street within weeks of the whole start of the campaign. And then they had Street Safe, the mayor of London. And in Hammersmith and Fulham, they had huge signs from the lampposts for the drivers. And it showed a car and it said, keep a car distance apart. So in other words, even in a car, you were supposed to stay one car distance apart from the next car <laughs> really? in, order, in order not to catch COVID. <laughs> and this sort of lunacy, but I mean, who... How did they get the author? What what layer of the bureaucracy within the council, and within local government, and then national government, and all the rest of it, were able to 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 do this? And why were they able to do this? That for me seems to be the central issue. And I've been involved in many campaigns around the issue. But one of the most important things that was said, I think, was was this idea that ultimately these powers can be broken at a, at any local level. If, if you just refuse to abide by, by what they're saying and you get a community refusing to abide, there's nothing they can do about it. You know, what are they going to do? Send in the army? You know, um, I mean, to some degree, they do. If it's a small little community somewhere, but I think it would be very difficult if it's, if it's a significant rebellion and resistance. And the government, of course, had all these behavioral goons looking at human psychology. Again, lower level bureaucrats in universities. Uh, and this is the point, the scientists, the universities, uh, a lot of the medical staff, um, local council officials, market trader officials, all these sort of lower level bureaucrats who had been getting pushed down over the years under privatization and so on. Suddenly they had their say, suddenly they were somebody mm. and, and, and stamped their authority on what was going on. And, um, it's the petty bureaucrats who enable this whole thing to go in down to the police, of course, the local police then, you know, go and giving out bloody fines for walking down the street and then escalating that to the point where they literally got 80 people dragging one girl for having a cup of coffee in Hyde Park, you know. So I don't think they can come back with that. There's almost like an ecstasy at the moment you can see amongst the people when, 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 when the opening came, everyone's done the power, everyone's ignoring everything. You can sneeze in the bar without people turning around, exactly, you know. I don't think they can come back with that, but the point is about when you've rolled out this enormous state repression, when people have submitted to the most draconian dictatorships almost of the 20th century, I mean, not in terms of it slaughtering people, but in terms of manipulating people and getting them to do their bidding, getting them to behave in the most bizarre and peculiar fashion, almost like some weird religious sect to take on over the whole of the world. That, of course, is something that they have in their armory, in their storeroom, that they can bring out in one form or another. And, of course, there are all sorts of general crises coming now. You know, the movement from COVID was shifted immediately. It was, it was 
synchronous with, with, with the development of, of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the decline in the war in Ukraine, which I think is happening now, is, is synchronous with the shift to the war in, to the threat of China war. And um, and the general economic crisis, you know, which of course is is looming everywhere, and was also to some degree responsible for the whole of the COVID hysteria as well. Yeah, the, what was as interesting? What you just said is interesting the, about the bureaucracy. Uh, essential worker, key worker. I noticed this term "key worker" come in about ten. 15 years ago, I never really heard it before. And mm -hmm. it just kind of like, I started, oh, this is key worker accommodation. These are for key workers. Mm -hmm. And then it really kind of, it, it came into its own in 2020. Mm -hmm. A central worker, key worker, and frontline staff. Yeah, yeah. So it was like the wartime, oh. it was wartime language. Yep. So nurses, NHS workers, key workers were frontline. Yep. And so they're giving priority for everything special privileges. Um, I, I couldn't book into a hotel. I was locked out of my flat during the COVID thing and I couldn't get a room at a hotel because I couldn't get my landlord till the morning. I had to go to juries or one of these hotels. They said, no, you, are you a key worker? I said, no. They said, sorry, the, the hotel's reserved for key work. I said, are you occupied? He said, no, we're 70, we're 70 percent open. We're only 30 percent occupied, but you have to be a key worker yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. to stay in the hotel yeah, 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 because they needed to have the rooms free for, quote, key workers. Yeah. So this was the wartime feeling, marshalling the wartime like, collective effort. The government was using that language. Yeah. Boris was channeling that Churchill. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, in the lionization of the first responders, uh, the NHS workers and all that, clap for the NHS and all that. That was interesting. They really did try to marshal those that the blitz spirit, right? Yep. Yep. I mean that there was a guy uh, who came to Speaker's Corner many decades, and he was used to work at the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries, and he, very traditional English guy, pro Farage, big moustache. And during the lockdown, he had some conflict with some drug dealers who tried to, to basically push him out of his own house. And he couldn't get the police to do anything about it. And he was, I didn't realize until a couple of weeks, someone told me, you've got to have, a word with you. have something wrong with him. And I had a word with him he was in his 80s, early 80s. And he had been sleeping in a COVID testing tent outside a hospital because he couldn't, he didn't want to bother anybody about it. And he couldn't get into anywhere. And I got him, I said, he's working for me and, and contacted the hotel and booked a hotel for him saying he's a key worker. And then he got in, it was really cheap. He's in a four-star hotel in Kensington. He's really cheap, but he didn't know. And so people would fall through these gaps. You know, there was no concern whatsoever for what was going on. You know, I mean, they found one person recently who's apparently died before the whole COVID thing and they've just been stuck in the, you know, I've only found recently. I'm sure there's going to be more of them turn up. And the, the social isolation, the collapse of civilization, the imposition of a dictatorship through the internet and through command wartime television, you know, three guys stand up in front of you and tell you what the truth is through the manipulation of truth, complete falsification of truth, the destruction of critical science and therefore critical layers of the bureaucracy of the lower levels of the bureaucracy who are, who are critical. That's very Stalinist the way that operated. You know, that's very similar to what, to what happens in China. In China, they always know you do have to have a certain layer of this critical thinking. Otherwise the machine will seize up. And here, 
it's been more and more corralled into a layer of goons, really, really, really ignorant goons in the universities, in the scientific field, in the whole climate discussion. It's become quite intolerable. And, and, and funnily enough, the one time I really got attacked violently, I mean, I was attacked violently by the police, but violently by ordinary people, was at, um, at the Labour Party, at the Labour Party at, at, and, we, and Jeremy Corbyn's supporters. They just couldn't tolerate it because they thought, again, that was them. You know, we were doing something, you know, our NHS, uh, we're, we're wearing masks, we're doing the right thing, which is the mindset of the Stalinists, of, of course, as well. You see, so I became quite convinced that the, 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 the by Stalinists, I mean, bureaucratic administrators who in the event of some kind of overturn of capitalist property relations would see themselves as the natural inheritors and the people who should take over ruling. That's not this kind of socialism and Marxism I believe in, but the, that's, what, that's their mindset, I think. And that's why they think they're justified in punching, punching people in the face if they don't agree with them on these key, were key issues, you know. Because they have a system and the system works. And therefore... Uh, we 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 are going to administer that, and we are the inheritors of of. The, look, we're going to take a break here with the network. Let's pick this thread up yep. on the other side. I'm here in studio with Heiko Ku. We're having a fascinating discussion. We've we've gone into uh, the, an area that uh, I think is very interesting. Where we weren't planning to go into, but I think we need to expand on this on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT today's news talk. We'll be right back. The midterms and America votes on November 8th. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Three high-profile deaths grabbed the headlines today. Singer and actress Olivia Newton-John, America's historian David McCullough, and litigator to the stars Burt Fields. May perpetual light shine upon each of them. But Olivia was 73 and battling cancer for the third time. David was 89 and Burt was 93. It's not remarkable when people in that age group pass away suddenly. What is remarkable are all the thousands of deaths that aren't grabbing headlines. All the young athletes dying of cardiac complications. All the pilots and healthcare workers who had to get jabbed to keep their job. The father of one young boy who now has a permanently scarred heart following his injection released an audio tape today of a telephone conversation he had with the pharmacist that supplied the injection. When asked why parents weren't being warned that myocarditis was a potential side effect, the pharmacist callously replied, we don't want to scare parents because then they might not get the injections for their children. This is criminal and there must be accountability. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Suck it up. It's not a big deal. Snap out. Just get over it. We've all heard it. But if you're experiencing extreme stress, it's not just in your head. It can affect your entire body because toxic stress can hurt us physically without us even knowing it. If you've lost a job, worry about your next meal, or have trouble making it through the day, if you're feeling the effects of stress, we can help. Text STRESS to 211211 to find a solution. Government couldn't stop a flu-like virus. And now they want you to believe they can stop the Earth's climate from changing? The Voice of Reason is TNT Radio. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're into the second hour right now, joined in studio by a political commentator, activist, free speech uh, advocate of, of sorts, Heiko Ku, in studio. Thank you very much for joining us today, Heiko. Great. Mm-hmm. It's great to have you. And uh, we've got about 20 minutes. Um, we're going to break at the top of the hour here. Uh, if you're if you're able to stick with us, we'd love to... Uh, a wee bit longer. A wee bit longer. Quarter past, yeah. Yeah, quarter past. Great. That'll be fantastic. Now, before the break, we brought up an interesting uh, line. You're talking about the Stalinist bureaucracy and how some of the failing characteristics of a system like that are, are now being manifest today right before our eyes in in the uh the the western liberal democracies are falling they're falling into the same trap that other uh regimes have fallen into in the past and that comes with problems there's dysfunction that sets in as a result of that we'll talk about the censorship issue in a minute but what you said is really important i think you know that that layer of bureaucracy that critical layer of bureaucracy that you need to kind of keep the others from going too far adrift um, when you when, when the political pressure to to be part of the consensus ukraine's a good example everybody seems to be in government we're on the same page with covid we're on the same page with ukraine that to me is a nightmare when everybody's on the exact same page and they won't deviate from whatever the talking points are then I, I think big problems can occur at that point. Like literally, you can take the whole ship in the wrong direction. What What, what are your uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, the Soviet bureaucracy or the Chinese bureaucracy, they, and within that, the party, they don't expect everybody to go along with this. They they just expect that they, well, I say, they don't expect everyone to, to, to maintain the arguments that they maintain. They expect everybody to go along with it. So to accept it or to tolerate it, but to, and, and they'll let people, you know, in, in a period of relative stability, they'll let people say and think whatever they want. China, for example, if you go to China, you'll meet more critically minded people than you'll meet in the West in general. And they'll, they'll criticize the government openly and clearly in front of you. But that doesn't mean they'll go on the streets and protest about it because they know the consequences would be quite severe. So the, the people who do do that in China are people, sort of migrant workers and people who haven't got nothing to lose at all, you know. And in the West, what they've got is this layer of, you could call them cadres, you know, the, 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 the administrators, the officer caste of the universities, the officer caste of the education system, of the healthcare system, of local government. Generally, with a university degree, generally with some administrative skills within the parameters of the bureaucracy, which has been cut back over recent years, suddenly getting a pump of money in their direction and being clapped and cheered and not really critically minded enough to question dominant narratives or only to accept sort of, I say, dominant alternative narratives. So dominant alternative narratives might be a lot of the things that the, the, you know, the great reset people want. So, you know, fight climate change, you know. So there's a police officer, for example, at Speaker's Corner. He's a very nice guy. He he just retired last year. He didn't approve of the way the COVID policy was implemented at Speaker's Corner. And then when he got up and made a speech on the 150th anniversary, he's thrown himself now into the climate struggle. So 
he's got a bit of savings, he's got some money, you know, he's got his pension coming in, his police pension. And with that, he thinks, you know, he can save, help to save the world. So he gets a mission in life out of that. And I think a lot of these layers, um, intermediate layers who work for the state, not only them, also some private sector companies. The private sector companies are more involved because they want the money from the state to subsidize them. They see China, for example, as a threat to the West because it had a huge state intervention and the state finances huge projects. And they think one of the weaknesses in the West is that they don't do the same thing. They'll only do it for the military or something like that. And so they want a huge shift in the organization of capitalism where massive resources are given from the state to the public sector to pursue specific objectives. And, and COVID has been one of them. Climate change is the next one, or has been running along alongside it all, all the time. And, and they don't brook criticism. If you criticize them, you're an enemy. Uh, you, you know, you're literally, and, and, and they, like they were condemning us as, you know, on, on the vax issue, they were condemning us literally as, as semi-terrorists for going out protesting about what was happening or for, for challenging people at a vax center or something like that, where they're jabbing people and where, where, and where, where the consequences are, 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 are there for everybody to see now. And, and they're even being published in the newspapers now. And now all these slimy creatures are gradually moving their position and saying, well, everybody knows that. Everybody knows some people are injured. If, you know, they, they move their parameters so that to try and take away the ground from underneath the feet of those who did actually stand up for truth at the time. So um, this bureaucratic layer is quite a dangerous force, actually. And this, this, is, this is essentially the difference, in my opinion, between socialism and, 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 and the regimes that called themselves socialists is you require real democratic control and real democratic discussion about all important questions about science and society and the organization of society to create anything that would be worthy of the name of socialism. And unfortunately, the people who who currently claim to be socialists or claim to be liberals or, or, or Democrats and whatever, they're basically, and, and pursue these lines of, of, of climate change hysteria and COVID hysteria and vaccine hysteria, lock everybody up. I mean, Naam Chomsky wrote to him. He had, got, he had gone online and said, isolate the unvaccinated. Yeah. Isolate the unvaccinated. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they're, in, they're a danger to everyone else. In other words, he was literally calling for a sort of concentration camp scenario for those people who weren't vaccinated. This, a man who I respected over many years of critique of American imperialism, I thought he was a little bit odd in the way he posed things, but nevertheless, and, and here you are, you know, hero of the liberal left, advocating semi-fascistic or, 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 or Stalinistic methods of, of power. In fact, semi-fascist. In China, you don't have to have a vaccine. You don't have to have a vaccine, and they're, they're, and they're not stabbing mRNA jabs in you. They're giving you a jab that's probably not good for you, but, but they're not stabbing you with mRNA jabs. And in Korea, they didn't take any vaccines at all, and, they, and they've, had, they've all had COVID now, and they've all recovered. So, and I believe them because, because the CIA have got satellites. They could watch if there was extra activity in hospitals, they would have screamed out of the rooftops. In North Korea, yeah. Yeah, North Korea, yeah, yeah. North Korea. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure what they told about that was true. About 75 people died and the rest of them got ill, got, got a fever and recovered. 
Chomsky is the author of Manufacturing Consent, which yeah. is a great framework. Exactly. So I, how could he not apply it? I always said this. Why doesn't he apply it to the big pharma uh, fascist kind of corporatist merger with government? I mean, it seems obvious. They've manufactured consent. Yeah. Like, I mean, it gets worse. I mean, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, he even before the election, he wrote material on big pharma and how to deal with it and big pharma's a threat and big pharma's done this and that and this and that. But it, it didn't go into the actual depth you needed to go into. That's the truth about it. It's all this. So big pharma is big capitalist pharma. They're making profits. We should nationalize them. And then we should do what they're doing, you know. And therefore, what he took the position was, we need to roll out vaccines to the world. And that's the failure is they haven't jabbed everyone in the world quickly enough. So that's how psychotic you can become if you don't have you know, a critical mind about these things all the time. That's the definition of controlled opposition. It, <laughs> it, it actually, that sort of like it, it's the problem is we need to manage it. You know, we need, it needs to come under our control yep. and more vaccines. This is what Bill Gates was saying. Every man, woman and child needs to be vaccinated. Yep. Yep. No question about testing, no question about safety, effective. That seems to be a given. It's safe and effective. How do we know this? Because that was the consensus. Yeah. It's safe and effective. I've met quite a few people who've sort of swallowed the whole model story as well, you know. There was a great piece in the Corona Auschwitz in Germany I saw this morning, and it's got a little picture of a, you know, a baby dog, a six-month-old dog, a two-year-old dog, and then let's say 10 years time, what that would be like. And then you've got this dog with like seven legs and a great big furry and a huge creature the size of an elephant like that from the trajectory that you've got from the previous ones, you see. So, and, and that's the whole model hysteria, the whole model madness, you know. Everything's a model now. It, it came out of econometrics, I think. Mm, yeah. uh, and, and then it was transferred into, into well, epidemiology, of course, they've been doing it for, for decades, you know. That brilliant book by... Um, by Robert Kennedy covers that so extensively that I haven't found anything superior to that in explaining the whole thing. The new, the real Anthony Fauci. Yeah, the real Anthony Fauci is a magnificent book. Yeah, yeah. I just picked up a hard copy of that. At yeah, a, mm -hmm. at a conference, fifteen quid. I saw it. I'm saying, I couldn't get it. I ordered it months ago, and they said it was out of stock. Yeah, I contacted the publisher. I started selling them on for people, but I've run out now, so I'll get some more. It's a good book. It's, it's got great footnotes, well researched. Yep. absolutely dense. It's so densely packed. The print. It practically goes to the edge. <laughs> yeah. Did you notice that? That's right. That's right. To, to fit more words in there. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it would have been an extra, you know, 50 pages. Yeah. You really crammed it in there. Yeah. Great book. Great reference uh, there. So um, we've got a couple minutes left in this segment. Free uh, censorship. Okay. What do you think about the, you know, you saw the UK government sanctioning RT, sanctioning all Russian media outlets, Russian journalists, uh, potentially sanctioning anybody who's reporting for RT or even a, a British citizen named Graham Phillips mm. has been sanctioned for his videography in Donbass. Yep. His accounts were frozen, basically depersoned. And like you were talking about this bureaucracy uh, danger, <clears throat> the Stalinist style bureaucracy, how can you make sensible policy decisions, foreign policy decisions about things like war, things about arming countries for war, if you don't have access to all the information? How do we know how the conflict's going if we can't read the Russian reports in the UK? Mm -hmm. Isn't there, you know, what, how, how, how severe, how, how profound 
is this situation we're currently in now. Mm-hmm. In the at the end of the Second World War, the the U.S. intelligence agency set up something called the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. And they worked in conjunction with the summary of world broadcast from the BBC to monitor the news all around the world. And they published, for example, and I, I, I know about this because I, I became a dealer for their documents because I found when I went to study Chinese studies, um, the most important reference point was these journals called the Foreign Broadcast. They were five books a week, about twice the length of the Economist magazine with no pictures. So just text, heavy text hundreds of pages, I mean, 150 pages long, just text, translating newspapers, journals, articles, military articles, um, local radio broadcasts, local television broadcasts of relevance to understanding China. And they were published in seven volumes per day, five days a week. So, and they had hundreds and hundreds of staff working on this in, 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 in uh, Arlington, uh, Virginia in order to provide the CIA and government and military with the knowledge they required to understand what was happening in the other parts of the world. So what's goose for the, you know, his goose for the gander, you know, I mean, why are we not allowed to have this information? Why are they trying to censor this information and stop you from understanding what's happening? How can you possibly understand yourself what's happening unless you are monitoring what the other side is saying and you have to understand the language they're using and then through the language they're using, you get an inkling about what the dynamics are inside that country, inside their army, inside their conf- in military. You know, even if you supported defeating the Russians, that would be the method to get the population on side. But here we have a different method, which is the method transferred from COVID to military affairs, which is you're not allowed to know anything. You know, you're not supposed to know anything. And it is actually quite hard to find it, find out what's going on. Yeah. You have to go on you know, a, a Tor browser, for example, you have to know all about that type of stuff. You have to go and search out. And then, you know, whereas they had previously specifically sought to inform people relatively accurately about what was taking place, at least when those intelligence communities and the academic community and all that sort of thing. Whereas now the academic community and the intelligence community themselves are being totally fooled by, by the nonsense they're telling each other. And we're supposed to just make decisions based on emotional responses to blue and yellow flags, which which suddenly spontaneously emerge everywhere in the country, everywhere in the Western world. And everybody's supposed to cry because there's a television show that shows the horrors of war, as if we don't know the horrors of war, you know, from our own governments carrying out warfare. So it's complete madness, absolute madness. And this madness is, is, is sweeping the world and conquering the minds of the population. But, uh, but there is also still critical thinking amongst the population created largely by the anti-lockdown movement for, for all its flaws and weaknesses. Largely that, that gap has been, has been kept open because of the, of, of the critical attitude of, of millions of people around the world to, what, to, the, to the lies they were told. We got uh, just two minutes left before we break at the top of the hour. You mentioned the anti-lockdown movement. How significant do you think this is? Because I've never, I've seen movements, anti-war movements. I've seen, uh, you know, labor union movements and things like that. I've never seen anything that was so horizontal and, and just it, it captured people from all different places around society, all came together on this issue. Have you, you know, what, how do you? How would you describe it? it You've got two it, minutes left. It did remind me a bit of the opposition movement in East Germany. I was active in the opposition before the Berlin Wall came down in East Germany. And um, it did remind me a bit of that because it was small layers of people questioning the orthodoxy of the state and society, 
and then suddenly finding that they were capturing the mood within the population, but passing all that round in the underground. It wasn't any official channels for us to distribute that. And so there is a similarity there. And the fact, and in fact, in Germany, in East Germany, was the main focal point for the protests in Germany. And they had similar protests, you know, every week they'd have a demonstration. You know, maybe in some, some of the smaller towns, they had half the population marching on those demonstrations. So there was a sense that this is something very, very similar. You know, an epoch-making transmission tra transition in human thought. And, and I think that was true. And I think it's actually the anti-lockdown movement that, 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 that forced them to back down. I think that's why they backed down. It was suddenly they declared this one demonstration in England, I think it was February, to be an NHS demo. It was an anti-lockdown demo. Mm -hmm. And it was organized on, on, on Telegram. It wasn't officially organized. They had no, unlike the anti-war anti demos, which were backed by the Daily Mirror, it was not backed by any official sources. And yet that reflected you know, what was next? If the government didn't back down then, what would happen next? Mandating the NHS staff to do it? The NHS staff would leave, the whole narrative would fall apart. And so I think that was decisive in shifting the balance. And then from what, and of course Canada and, and, and Australia, the building workers and so on, and that knocked down the narrative and destroyed it. And, and, and then suddenly backtracking like that they never believed in it at all. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah, the Sammy Stott, the the undercurrent, the the information was being circulated amongst very widely uh, dispersed, you know, uh, people in different strata of society. I'm here with Heiko Ku. We're talking about some very important issues that uh, I would dare say are going to affect us all now and in the future. Hopefully, uh, Heiko will stick with us for a couple more minutes on the other side of the hour. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're listening to TNT Today's News Talk. We appreciate you joining us this afternoon and uh, come with us into the third hour on the other side. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're cruising into the third hour of this live broadcast, and uh, we're still joined in studio by our special guest, Heiko Ku. He's a political commentator. He's an activist. He's also a regular fixture down at the legendary location known as Speaker's Corner. And uh, thank you so much for hanging with us yes, great, great. into the third hour, Heiko. And um, you know, before the break, we we're talking about the anti-lockdown movement and how unique it was, different than anything I've ever seen. And, you know, we've all been involved in marches and we're, I was there in the, what they said, 2 million people in 2003. Mm. Uh, didn't make a big difference, <clears throat> as it were. But this was different. You know, the anti-lockdown was different. We, there was a big numbers that, that came out with that. And I think it did make a difference, and you agree with me on that. It because England pulled back uh, in a way. Wales went full on in the end. Scotland went full on. Northern Ireland they had vaccine access. You need to show your proof of vax right. to get into a place that served alcohol, for instance, in the late as, as late as January. Right. Then they all kind of withdrew quickly. But England never went that far. Not like Germany went. Not like France and Spain went. Mm -hmm. Spain's still on it, by the way. They're still masks to come in and out of spain <laughs> as soon as you leave spanish airspace you can take your mask off yeah. can you believe that yeah well it's free then <laughs> <laughs> but 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 england didn't and you think that had something to do with that kind of presence yeah i think the key thing was there were sections of the workers 
powerful sections, either emotionally or actually in terms of their strength, their ability to, to, to impact the economy. The building workers in Australia, the truckers in, in Canada, and the health workers in Britain. And the mandate is unfortunate for the French. They didn't manage to push it because the, the French health workers did protest and they were defeated. Yeah. And that was probably because of the long period of struggles around the yellow vest that had just dragged on and on and on for years. And so the same social constituency that the yellow vest represented, they'd already in some way been defeated and they didn't have that power and energy during the anti-lockdown protests that we had perhaps in Britain or Germany where we were taking up the cudgel that they had left behind on those issues, you know. And um, Germany was important, but Germany was pushing harder and harder and Austria to the most extreme forms of totalitarian power. You know, you must have a jab to leave your home. I mean, what sort of insanity is that? They did something like that in France as well, actually. You, know, you only leave for, for an hour, out to fill out a form and all these yeah. lunars. In fact, we should pull together sort of lists of all the type of insane measures they took in each country because I don't think there is a – I haven't seen a comprehensive list or a summary of that on a video on YouTube or something like that because it's important people to, to remember all these insane measures because people naturally, when they've gone through trauma – they naturally want to forget everything. But actually, it's important for us to remember that, the, the events that took place. And it was the health workers here, that this protest that had this huge symbolic significance where people threw the clothing, like the, the, the clothing from the nurses and the doctors. And some doctors began to speak out. Some nurses began to speak out, which reflected a much wider mood amongst the doctors and nurses. They knew very well. Of course, they all knew what was going on. A lot of them... You know, but they loved the adulation they received. Suddenly they were somebody, you know, who doesn't like to be somebody. Celebrity, like kind of celebrities in a way. I mean, yeah. overnight the nation was behind them, you know, and they're elevated to the highest level. Exactly. Of Exactly. So they were almost like, like Stakhanovites in, in the Soviet Union, you know, heroes of the nation. When has that ever happened before? Like you said, never happened before. And so when they began to act, that shifted the mood. And the BBC, as I said earlier on, they, they presented a, a demonstration of 100,000 anti-lockdown protesters with 10,000 nurses and doctors as an, as an NHS demo, which was extraordinary. And then they suddenly reported, whereas they'd not reported anything for, about these protests or barely anything or only negative. So that was important in shifting the mood and forcing the government into, because they, they have their experts. They do have some experts, who, military experts, intelligence experts, behavioral, not the idiots that they put forward as behavioral insights people. They've got their own people in the background who've had for decades who understand about war, civil war, and conflict, and who study protest demonstrations, unrest, revolutions, terrorism, and so on. And, and, and I think they sat down there in many countries and said, this is coming to an end and we're going to have to stop this. Otherwise, there'll be some kind of revolution and it will be a violent revolution. And what else, what other choice did people have given conditions where we weren't even allowed to leave our home? It had to be a violent revolution. So well, it would have had to been. And so I think that's why they backed down. I, I really do. I think that's why they backed down. Or, or at the very least, you know, widespread civil disobedience, mass non-compliance. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, by that, I, that's what I mean. I don't mean the overthrow of the existing order. There wasn't but, a but, clear direction in that, but, but that, in terms of mass movements. But yes. that could lead to the overthrow. It could. 
potentially of the, of the existing order. And we will see that in several. Sri Lanka has already shown that, although it's not, of course, the existing order's been overthrown, but at the same time, nothing's replaced it, so they'll reconstruct something. But that same dynamic that's happened in Sri Lanka, I think in a lot of countries, people are looking at that and saying, this is the way we're going. There's an American uh, kind of economist, commentator, financial pundit. His name is Gerald Salente. Okay. You might have come across. No, I don't know. He's got a famous saying. He says, when people have nothing left to lose, they lose it. Yeah. This is American talking. So yeah, yeah. The, the nomenclature. So and we're very close to that for a lot of people. I mean, you're talking about losing your business, losing your employment, and your freedoms have been restricted. Yeah. Your basic rights and freedoms are suspended. Yeah, yeah. And and everybody's n- no people I know their whole lives they never experienced that. No, exactly, exactly. And and it, and it affected people in the deepest ways. You see, if you're born in the Soviet Union and you don't protest against the existing order, you don't come from a family of dissidents. You had in the nineteen seventies and eighties, you had quite an easy life. You know you go to work you don't have to work too hard you could have a lunch break have some beer in the morning have a meet with your friends go on a holiday in the summertime the point was they used to use the term sometimes in east germany authoritarian kindergarten and to some degree that's what it was whereas here we just had you know the most bizarre campaign it was like a campaign by such a regime against a foe And, and, and the foe was us you know, the, the the foe was the people, and and or the people who disagreed with the dominant the people were demonized. They were called out specifically by Boris Johnson, for instance. You know, we we we're going to have to keep restrictions because some people are not uh, you know, right. behaving properly. Not com- that yeah. was the inference, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and and then within families and communities and political groups and so on, the same attitude was was applied. I remember seeing many people who I've known many years. Basically saying, you know, these people need to be, you know, dealt with. Yeah. yeah. And so much for their for their for their belief in democracy and freedom. And then of course they throw back this ridiculous argument. Oh, you're undermining our freedom but because you're we're all restricted because you haven't been jabbed. Yeah. You know. Right. A bloody lunatics. That's exactly what, what was happening. And <laughs> yeah. uh, the high-profile people weighing in on this, you know, Piers Morgan, guys like, you know, these media influencers, Andrew Neal, yep. they need to be segregated, the unvaxxed, the, un, the, you know, the unclean. Exactly, exactly. No, that's exactly what it was. I mean, the most, I mean, like I say, even I, you know, everyone wants to forget. I, I was writing something at the time and uh, sort of manifesto-type document I wanted to do. I and with the opening, I haven't returned to it. I must get back to return to it, but I haven't returned to it almost like a thank god that's over. Yeah, you know? you I don't even want to write about that anymore. Don't want to open that, <laughs> that box again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your foot locker. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, no, that's the, these are things that uh, there is a huge sigh of relief that you know, yeah, I mean, but we a lot of people felt the need, the urgency to address the core of the issue at the time but then when the pressures lifted then you're like well you got a choice you know you can you're going to go shore up the defenses for the future or you can move forward in life for the moment and just you know get on with things of course that's difficult it's very very difficult for people who have been inspired by a movement or been inspired to be part of a movement and to build a movement that's fighting against a new type of tyranny and then 
the tyranny suddenly disappears, it's difficult for someone to keep their mind focused on on, on the issues that, that why did that happen and what's it, what does it mean for the future? It's very difficult to keep people on board with that. Plus the fact people come from many, many different backgrounds, many different ideological ways of frameworks of thinking about it. And so the commonality will begin to disappear and people start throwing all sorts of accusations and slanders against each other and so on. So that's definitely happened. But uh, as we all know, there are desperate economic crises coming, strike movements. I mean, there are going to be strike movements in Britain now that have never been seen since the 1970s, maybe even more militant than that. Mm. I mean, I'm looking at this gas story, gas and electricity price story. I don't have a clue how much my gas and electricity is going to go up to this day. There's no thing that lets me. I, I haven't found a way to calculate what my new gas and electricity will. So I'm worried about it. Yeah, I'm genuinely worried about it. And I don't know to what degree this is going to be as bad as they're making out, but it does sound like it. Yeah. And if so, <laughs> you know, you can expect to all sorts of hell break out. And, and many of the people who will be at the front line will be people who, suck, who swallowed the whole story. Mm-hmm. They swallowed the whole story. They got vaccinated. They agreed with it. They thought people should, should be locked down. And now they're suffering. And, um, and, and because of, and everybody knows it was because of the pandemic, the money they blew on the pandemic. And, and, and that there's uh, preposterous extremes of wealth inequality multiplied. I mean, the wealthiest 10 companies in the world doubled their wealth. Elon Musk went from 25 billion to 225 billion as a personal wealth. So everybody knows that. And so the, the, the mood will shift militantly against that. The unfortunate thing is, of course, is it won't shift back then to the, to, to the, to the anti-lockdown movement, it, it will tend to move back. Uh, my guess is it will tend to move back towards the trade through the trade unions and then to the Labour Party, like it or not, just because that's the process in politics is that the formal process of Labour tour and so on is the dominant process. Underneath it will be something else going on. I mean, like Jeremy Corbyn suddenly got elected to leader, like him or not, he, he represented something different, and, and and the mood will the mood that brought him to power actually be much, much more militant and radical once the workers begin to take strike action and still lose out. You know, they take strike action, get a 15% pay rise, let's imagine, or 10%, and still they, their living standards have been hammered. Yeah, yeah. That's when all, all the shit will hit the fan. Still underwater. Yes. Even with the yes. pay rise. Yes, I mean, get electricity cut off, or, yeah. you know, you, you worry about electricity. And how many people are going to, you know, they're all talking about COVID. How many people are going to die from the cold this year then? Yeah, if that's the case. But of course, on the other side, I, I, I always had a tendency in politics to 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 you know to take the wor- you know, worst case scenario position, and actually now I, I try and avoid that because um, it, it's it's the fear porn that, that they use, and 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 I've realised that that's not actually beneficial for 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 developing a movement. I mean, inevitably you do a bit of it, but. I realise now that that's not. It's really not a way to build a movement. Is is to spread fear. Like for example, oh, um, millions died of COVID. And then you say, well, yeah, but millions are going to die from the vaccine. I I think it's probably not as many as that, but it's certainly. And even if it were, the fear porn is not the way to go. Yeah. No. 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 We we the, the what's important is people need to know the tools are there. Yeah. The tools are there. You can work with the tools. Don't lose faith in the fundamentals because the establishment wants you to even lose faith in that. Yeah, yeah. That you're disempowered, that you're, you know, doom scrolling all day yeah. and nothing that we can do. The elites, you know, <laughs> Gates and the Klaus Schwab's, you know, got his magic wand and he's cast us. But no, we, yeah. we, we do 
And it's been proven time and time again that we do have the tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just have to use them. Yeah, I like that doom scrolling. I use that. Yeah, doom scrolling. <laughs> I yeah, like I know. That. I'm yeah. guilty of it, but uh, I try not. To, I, not <laughs> I try not to get overcome with the doom in that. But uh, look, I know you've got to run, and I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, Ian. Heiko Ku for joining us. And if you want to see uh, more of Heiko Ku, where can people? Well, find I would you? say you can. You, well, I do a Karl Marx walking tour, which is much maligned by a lot of people, but I give an honest interpretation of his life and ideas and uh, um and his time uh, in london right yeah every sunday every sunday morning at piccadilly 11 o'clock in london so if you're coming to london sometime come on the walking tour um it's highly entertaining piccadilly circus piccadilly circus at 11 o'clock and the speaker's called in the afternoon so 11 o'clock's big piccadilly circus on sundays markswalks.com that is and uh, on sundays at speaker's corner uh, the same after so in the afternoon 3 30 i speak then and you can visit the, the youtube channel subject access where we do a lot of streams and we've got a big archive from the whole lockdown movement out of that we hope to construct some sort of um, historical record of what happened of, of the resistance movement yeah a subject access great channel great uh, great organization great real independent very good independent uh, uh, correspondent on the ground during all of that yeah so it's great to see that thanks very much yeah no, it's our, our pleasure. Our pleasure. That's Heiko Ku, ladies and gentlemen. Look, we're going to take a break and we'll come back on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT Today's News Talk. Stick around. You should hear what Rick Munn's talking about. In England. Oh, yes. England. Good old England, eh? Good old blighty. Well, well, well. Guess what? There's a recession and we're in the middle of it. And it's going to get worse, as predicted. Not doom merchants, not gloom merchants, not profits of doom. Simply joining the dots. Yes, we like to join the dots at TNT Radio. We get a lot of flack for it. But hell's bells, eventually, the media come around and the, even the governor of the Bank of England comes around and validates the things that we have been hypothesizing for the previous several months. Uh, Bank of England governor defends rate hike ahead of looming recession. So he's whacking the interest rates up in the UK by half a percentage point, which is the biggest single rise in decades. UK economy is to be in recession for more than a year. Listen, it's going to be a heck of a lot more than a year. This ain't going away within 12 months. This is just the beginning. Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Mainstream media censors, smears, and intimidates those telling the truth. We mandate that the truth be told. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT. Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Uh, we're cruising into the third hour of this live broadcast. And I have to say, that was just an amazing, an amazing discussion with Heiko Ku. Uh, he's, he's a great He's a great commentator, and uh, you know he's he's well versed in so many different areas of politics, culture, society, history, all of that. He's got a really unique take on China, and of course, he's been there for a very long time uh, on, on lots of different movements throughout uh, late twentieth century history, and now into the twenty first century. Um, again, on the front lines, as it were, of uh, some really important movements and issues. So we're we're just really uh, you know. Pleased that he was able to break free and uh, give us, you know, over an hour uh, during these last two segments. So, I mean, fantastic, really amazing. But uh, a little update on the Trump uh, situation, the FBI's raid on Trump. So, here's the other side of the story. Now, one of the great 
resources online for U.S. deep state politics is Technofog. And Technofog, a legend on Twitter, uh, got his account nuked, I think managed to get back up again, since moved on to Substack as well. The Reactionary is the name of his column on Substack, Technofog. And apparently, according to Technofog, it appears the FBI has left Mar-a-Lago. This is the Trump uh, residence there. Federal Bureau of Investigation today executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. And uh, yeah, they just left. So they went in, they broke into Trump's safe. I guess they're after a couple of boxes of documents here. Now, according to the New York Times, the search the FBI raid had to do with materials taken home by the president after he left the White House. This is what the New York Times has to say. The search, according to two people familiar with the investigation, appears to be focused on material that Trump had brought with him to Mar-a-Lago, his private club and residence. After he left the White House, those boxes contain many pages of classified documents, according to a person familiar with the content. So Mr. Trump uh, delayed the returning of these 15 boxes, 15 boxes of files. That's a lot of material. Uh, uh, and this was requested by officials with the National Archives for many months. So they wanted this stuff in the National Archives, uh, only doing so when there became a threat of action being taken to retrieve them. So what is in those boxes? That's the big question. I'm sure the FBI wanted to get their hands on them. The politics of the search can't be ignored, says Technofog. If the New York Times is to be believed, which we can't say that that's a certainty, everything you read in papers like the New York Times or the Washington Post, anything related to Trump, related to Democrat versus Republican, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, um, it has to be gauged with a degree of skepticism because you know that it's completely partisan. Um, It's got a political objective to it. The press is not objective uh, at all when it comes to these matters now. Um, So the politics of the search can't be ignored. And uh, Trump's purported crime, the delay of returning materials that may be classified, and that's an important point, may be classified. Who says they're classified? Is there a debate around that? Is there a discussion to be had? I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's a gray area here. Like everything with Trump, that the, the the media, these various federal agencies, the DOJ has done massive persecution uh, across the board, whether it's Manafort, George Papadopoulos, Roger Stone, or any of the other people they've hounded, hunted down, arrested for doing nothing uh, of any consequence vis-a-vis Russia, Russian collusion, etc., two impeachment hoaxes. They were hoaxes, by the way. Uh, and that was designed to tie up the White House uh, in an election, right before an election year and even during an election uh, year. So the politics of the search uh, uh, definitely can't be, can't be ignored. Breaking into Trump's personal safe. That's interesting. So uh, Technofog expands this, saying, no doubt the search is an escalation by a desperate regime, Biden regime, Democrat regime, a Pelosi regime, you could call it, 
confronted by their own failures at home and abroad. I think that's a fair assessment. Failures at home and abroad. So the the big question here is, what what does this mean in relation to the January 6th kangaroo court Stalin show trial that was uh, raised by Pelosi, Schiff, and crew, Liz Cheney, and other uh, hardcore uh, radical uh, apparatchiks of the uh, deep state. So Technofog says, I've gone back and forth as I've written this, but it's certainly possible. There are also uh, the FBI were after documents relating to January 6th. Very interesting. Very interesting. So there are no guarantees considering the politicization of Biden's DOJ. No argument there from me, uh, which has thus far protected friends in politics. The killer of Ashley Babbitt, one person was shot and killed during January 6th, and it was a Trump supporter. And the media have agreed to a vow of silence on that issue. And the DOJ uh, apparently has covered it up, a murder, an execution of Ashley Babbitt. Supporters in academia and the President Biden's own corrupt son. So this is the things that the DOJ uh, will not necessarily be hearing in a fair and expedient manner. One can be certain, says Technofog, however, that if the Biden administration uh, will carry out this raid, then it will also be aggressive to pursue charges against Trump relating to January 6th, as if there were any doubt. After all, last week, there was a reporting that the federal grand jury investigating January 6th had issued subpoenas to the Trump White House counsel and so forth. So the roadmap for the DOJ comes from January 6th committee, which has poured out the thin gruel of purported criminal charges against Trump, alleging he and others, including attorney John Eastman, will be charged with A, obstruction of an official proceedings, and B, conspiracy conspiracy to defraud the United States, each of these counts. And really the DOJ's pursuit of Trump and his attorneys and advisors amounts to the criminalization of politics. And like I said in the first hour, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you call that lawfare if it was happening in Brazil uh, or any other country which would be deemed a third world dictatorship. This is actually going on in the United States right now. Dark days, dark days in U.S. history, no doubt about that. The general atmosphere has descended into something akin to the Red Scare, uh, the, the McCarthyite era. Uh, these are times that uh, Americans uh, lament and regret uh, dark times politically where people lost their minds and were, went a little bit power hungry, uh, a lot power hungry and blacklists and, uh, you know, pursuing people, running people out of politics. All, these are all things that you would say is un-American uh, in a normal uh, era in normal circumstances, but all seems to be absolutely uh, permissible and allowable in this weird, tilted, tilted political playing field, uh, which we all find ourselves in now. Nobody can understand how we got here. No, and moreover, nobody knows where we're heading. And that's probably the most frightening thing of all about story like this is where are we heading? Where's, where's the country heading? Where are Americans heading? So Technofog continues arguments 
of law that might fail in the courts are now prosecutable offenses. That's a pretty frightening statement right there. So this is, you know, this is not unlike, and, you know, Heiko Ku, our last guest, was drawing parallels between COVID and other sort of, you know, monolithic thinking. The Ukraine proxy war is an example. Uh, and in, in the pandemic, it was the pathologizing of, you know, normal cycles of the flu or people getting a cold or getting sick uh, is, is re-pathologizing this and turning into a, you know, global pandemic. Normal occurrences, remodeling, repackaging, throwing the state muscle in there and all of a sudden it's it's become a a, a major pathological uh, event or medical event, medical emergency, etc. Things that normally happening year in, year out. Here is the same sort of thing. The state is basically prosecuting things that wouldn't normally succeed in the court. So this is called lawfare. This is what happens in banana republics, tin pot dictatorships. And this is the way the United States is going right now, weaponizing federal agencies. Um, do these people understand history? Do they know who J. Edgar Hoover was? Do they know what dark years those were in U.S. politics where politicians, presidents, civil rights leaders were turning up dead? Okay, that's what happened in the U.S. 50, 60, 70 years ago. That was think those are things that happened that changed the course of history, um, and they were indicative of highly corrupt uh, federal agencies, be it the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Justice, and so on and so forth. So, this is uh, not going to end well. I predict this is not going to end well. You could see these are the early uh, moves; these are the harbingers of what could become civil unrest. But the political variety, which will be very, very difficult to manage, very difficult to manage. So attempts to delay a vote count, a count, a vote count based on novel and not corrupt interpretations of the law can put you in prison. In other words, wanting to see due process all the way after a election, which a lot of people would say can be legitimately contested because of its uh, close nature because of the extenuating circumstances and the anomalies that were present uh, during uh, and after the 2020 election, before, during, and after, um, that uh, if you challenge that, if you if you have any interpretations of the election results uh, that fall outside of what is mainstream allowable discourse or that was being enforced by social media companies like Facebook or Twitter as an example, YouTube is an example. They were shutting people's accounts down who challenged the election results, and they're calling them election deniers. That can land you in prison, even if you are president of the United States. Everybody has a right to contest the election, even the president, of course, especially the president. So issues surrounding the counting of state results or whether the vice president, in this case Mike Pence, can refuse to count electoral votes is a matter to be decided through civil or political process, not through charges brought by vindictive political opponents. And I will add to that 
the uh, at the direction of federal agencies directing those sort of activities and uh, apprehending people, raiding people's homes, uh, indicting people, grand juries, etc. So updates as they come. Technofog adds here, this must have been approved by Attorney General Merrick Garland. He says, not certain if it got a green light from the President of the United States of the White House. Uh, certainly, we're talking about Joe Biden in this case. I can't imagine it getting a green light from Biden. It's probably best they didn't even tell him about it. And even if they told him about it, he probably wouldn't have been able to comprehend what they're actually telling him. Uh, so contrary to what, uh, well, this is Brian Kilmeade. He's with Fox. Just spoke to Eric, Eric Trump, son of Donald Trump. Nothing in the safe. FBI agents, 30 approximately, raided on behalf of the National Archives. This is outrageous. Has to have come from the President of the United States or someone in the White House. So Technofog disagrees, doesn't think that POTUS ordered this. That this is, in fact, the sort of deep state stroke Democratic establishment run Attorney General, Department of Justice Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland, of course, being a puppet of the deep state, puppet of the Democratic establishment. Clearly, that's what he is. This is how he's behaving. Uh, it's an embarrassment, really. This whole, this whole episode is embarrassing for the United States. It really is an embarrassment. This is a new low point. And again, we're, we're, we're into sort of tin pot dictator politics here. So and this is from Kelly O'Donnell, uh, and she's saying here on Twitter, uh, FBI notified the Secret Service that a warrant would be executed and Secret Service facilitated access to the Florida Trump property as fellow federal agents, but did not take part in investigation or search. Of course, they wouldn't do that because that's not their job. Uh, so they're not going to be able to hold the FBI back on that. So to shed further light on the purpose of this search, it's no other than DNC Clinton campaign attorney Mark Elias. That's a name we've seen before. Wow. Okay, here we go. So those convic convicted of this offense will be disqualified from holding office under the United States. Well, lo and behold, there's the subplot, ladies and gentlemen. There is a subplot. So if you are found to be in violation of the following uh, statute or criminal law at issue, and that will be concealment, removal, or m mutilation in general of documents, you shall henceforth forfeit your office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States government. So that is the plot, ladies and gentlemen. And thank you to Technofog for bringing us right down to the core of the issue so we know exactly what this is about. This is about making Donald Trump ineligible to run for president in the 2024 election. That's exactly what's going on here. That's what they're after. They're going for it. They want to indict the president. They're going to do it. I can't see how they could pull back from this. If they do, it would be a huge defeat for the sort of the DNC, Clinton establishment, the Obama establishment. Uh, if they pull back from this and they don't go to try to prosecute the former uh, 45th president of the United States, this would be a huge embarrassment for the establishment.
So for purposes of our inquiry, does it matter if this law wouldn't technically foreclose Trump from being elected to the presidency in 2024? Yes and no, says Technofunk. Section 2071 was debated back in 2015 regarding Hillary Clinton, and the general consensus was that the law's disqualification clause does not apply to the presidency. If Congress has no power to add to the standing qualifications of its own members, it cannot add to the standing qualification of other elected constitutional positions, i.e. the president and vice president of the United States. But the disqualification clause would certainly be used as a weapon in both the courts and in the court of public opinion, in the media, in other words, consistent with the regime's strategy to damage Trump politically. Hey, no change there. This isn't uh, Donald Trump's first rodeo, and certainly this isn't going to be his last. Expect more of this uh, in the coming months. Expect more of this. Are they going to go for the jugular here? Are they going to try it? We'll see. It's a hell of a sword, though, to be wielding at this time right before the midterm elections if the Democrats get any of this wrong. Uh, the results could be fatal for them, too, politically. And this does look like a ham-fisted operation, if there ever was one. Anyway, we'll talk more about this and other stories as we wrap up this third hour on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. You're listening to TNT, today's news talk. We'll be right back. You will own no property and be happy. That's right. The World Economic Forum strikes again. Stay tuned. From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The World Economic Forum has issued a call to reduce private vehicle use by eliminating ownership. The WEF urged more sharing of cars to, quote, reduce ownership. Why? Because the climate allegedly can't handle you owning a vehicle. The World Economic Forum now joins the U.K. Transport Secretary, who said that owning a car is outdated 20th century thinking, and we must move to, quote, share mobility to cut CO2 emissions. Not to be left out, Business Insider magazine has urged electric cars won't save us. We need to get rid of cars completely. The British Medical Journal's on record as saying we need substantially fewer journeys by car. And a Gates Soros-funded professor in Europe called for, quote, climate lockdowns and urged governments to limit private vehicle usage. And Democrat presidential candidate Andrew Yang called for the end of private vehicle ownership and instead offered Roe fleets of rental electric vehicles that can be called up as needed. My friends, the Great Reset is here. It's time for the Great Reject. For the Morano Minute, this is Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Are you finding it harder to do the things you used to do? Like vacuuming or getting to appointments? If you need a bit of support at home, the Australian Government's My Aged Care is your starting point to access services. You'll find all the information and advice you need in the one place. To find out about other services, eligibility and costs, call 1-800-200-422 or go to myagedcare.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra, spoken by Heather Christie. Free speech is in our DNA. Experimental vaccines will never change that. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Yeah, even there. Never miss out on the news and views of the big issues of the day. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio. Or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio.
Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you so much for rejoining us on this live broadcast. Uh, we're into the final segment of the final hour here. We've had a really powerful, action-packed show. Uh, we uh, want to thank our first guest, Christian, in the first hour, our research assistant for the show, and, of course, Heiko Ku uh, in hours two and three. A fascinating discussion and uh, so many different segues we could jump off on that. And I think we covered uh, a fair amount uh, of what we wanted to talk about. Heiko's a very insightful uh, political mind, but also a sort of great observer of what's happening down on the ground, uh, on the street level, uh, with day-to-day life. Uh, certainly, we're in one of the biggest, uh, most thriving metropolis cities in the world. London, there's a lot going on. Certainly, at Speaker's Corner, you definitely have your ear to the ground. So we're very pleased and uh, very fortunate to be talking to people like Heiko on this program. Now, uh, some good news. It's not all bad news. It's, uh, it's not all disturbing or jarring. There's some good news. Here's a feel-good story for everybody. We'll throw this out. And uh, Costa Rica, it's a small country, Central America, and they've just passed a law. Their president, his name is uh, Rodrigo Chavez Robles, newly elected president of Costa Rica. And here's the announcement, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for LFC News Media. That's Freddie Ponton for tweeting this out this afternoon. As of today, says President Robles, any action taken against anyone who does not want to be vaccinated is an action that is against the law. So you cannot discriminate or do anything or deprive anyone who's unvaccinated of anything. If they do, that's illegal. So there you go. So Australia is ahead in the sweepstakes game of freedom, democracy, and sovereignty. They've taken the lead over Western Europe. So shame on the Europeans and shame on everybody else who hasn't passed such a law. Uh, The U.S. and Britain will throw you in there as well. Show us your bona fides for freedom and democracy, please, uh, because we haven't seen you do anything remotely resembling this. You want to keep these powers latent, ready to go, so you can just flip the switch when you want to run the next pandemic. Costa Rica has got other designs. They've said, no, thank you. Uh, We're not having it. We're going to put this into law. You can't discriminate. You can't uh, do anything against the unvaccinated to marginalize them or deny them of their rights or anything like that. So this is uh, very interesting, very interesting. That's a a country that's uh, progressing, that's progressing a little bit down the path to uh, real freedom and uh, real democracy, uh, the country of Costa Rica. So well done, President uh, Rodrigo Chavez Robles. Very good. Very good indeed. Now, uh, on, back to the Ukraine side. Here's what we're going to end up with. And this is just bonkers, basically. Absolutely bonkers. So this is the Estonian prime minister here, European Union. And uh, I think, uh, what is this person's name? This is Katja, Katja Kalis, has urged Schengen countries to stop issuing tourist visas to Russian citizens. Stop issuing tourist visas to Russians, says the Estonian PM. Europe is a privilege, not a human right. So no freedom of movement. So freedom of movement, traveling to countries. No, she's saying no, that's that's a privilege, not a right. Stay out of the EU. The EU is suspending air travel. 
from Russia following the launch of Moscow's military operation in Ukraine late February. But the Schengen area countries have continued to issue visas to Russians, she wrote. So she wants collective punishment and discrimination based on nationality or race, if you were. So here's what she's saying. Estonia, Latvia, and Finland, which border Russia, have been forced to carry the burden of sole access points into the bloc for Russian citizens. She says, it's time to end tourism from Russia now for all Russians. They need to be denied. Why? What do they hope to achieve by this? I suppose the, 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 the usual logic or illogic from the West is that, uh, well, you know, if we collectively punish the country, we sanction them to death, or we deny them freedom of movement or anything like this, just ostracize the entire population, then the fantasy thinking goes that they'll somehow magic up a rebellion in Russia. In other words, it'll be so bad. Let's treat the Russians so bad. Let's discriminate against them. Let's let's take away their rights of movement in Europe, and they will rise up and overthrow Vladimir Putin and put a, uh, fr- a Western-friendly regime in there. That's the fantasy thinking. This is the projection that a lot of Westerners and EU people, in this case, these are Baltic states here, Estonia, Latvia, Finland, Lithuania, Estonia. Yeah, I, I can't see how this is going to work. So anyway, their prime minister has tweeted out that. And uh, so who's who's also weighing in on this? Of course, none other than the man himself, the man with the green T-shirt, Volodymyr Zelensky, the actor, the comedian, the mercurial political figure from Ukraine. He says he's president, but it's doubtful he's running anything at the moment other than his mouth and standing in front of uh, cameras. And the latest, actually, Zelensky's appearing as a three-dimensional hologram uh, to Western audiences. People are very excited about this. If Zelensky can't be there, but the next best thing is a virtual presentation of Zelensky in a sort of vertical monitor uh, that makes him appear holographic like he's actually in the room, believe it or not. This is an actual thing. This has happened. Western audiences are gushing over Zelensky's hologram. If you want to watch the hologram, go to 21stCenturyWired.com. We've got a clip of it there. And, uh, yeah, they absolutely love it. So what's Zelensky saying about this freedom of movement? What do we do with all the Russians? How do we keep the Russians out of the rest of the world? That's the big question that they're trying to answer here. What's Zelensky saying? He's saying that uh, Russians need to be banned from traveling anywhere outside of Russia or at least in the West, the Ukrainian leader, who won't be leader for much longer by the looks of it, wants a year-long prohibition of travelers and energy imports. So deprive Russians of the ability to travel, deprive Europeans or anybody else in the world of being able to import or buy Russian energy. That's a brilliant idea by Zelensky. He's full of brilliant ideas. He's a, a real he's a real genius. So calling the current anti-Russian sanctions weak, President Zelensky told the Washington Post in an exclusive interview uh, on Monday that the West must impose a full embargo on all energy imports from Russia and a travel ban on all Russians for at least one year. We need to punish them for one year. 
What will that achieve? Nobody knows, actually. He's like, he's just saying it. Just saying it to see if something will stick. It might Something might happen. It might change the course of this conflict that Ukraine's losing badly in men territory. It's a disaster. So he's interviewed inside his fortress, his fortified office in Kiev. You've seen the sandbags, the props. Uh, told the Washington Post the most important sanctions are to close the borders. Lock the Russians in Russia because um, that's my paraphrasing of his statement. Zelensky says, because the Russians are taking away someone else's land. So that's interesting. So we don't see the residents of Mariupol, of the Donbass, they don't, Crimea, they're not Kursan, they're not protesting the Russians' presence. In fact, they're voting for either independence from Ukraine or joining the Russian Federation. So but Zelensky saying, no, they're being forced against their will. All those Russians are being forced to join Russia, says Zelensky, is effectively what he's saying. But this is something deeper. Zelensky says the Russians should live in their own world until they change their philosophy. I don't think he knows what philosophy is, but it's an interesting word, a choice of words by the president. Whichever kind of Russian, says Zelensky, make them go to Russia. Wow, that's interesting. So is he calling for ethnic cleansing there, out of the Donbass, you know, get rid of the Russians out of Ukraine, whatever? Ukraine shrinking. That's the problem Zelensky has. So he said to the Post, arguing that collective punishment was the only way. He says, they'll understand then. They'll say, this war has nothing to do with us. The whole population can't be held responsible, can it? So again, it's the collective punishment, the fantasy that that's going to somehow drive change in Russia. In fact, it'll probably have the opposite effect. But of course, a high IQ individual like Zelensky wouldn't know that. So the population picked this government, says Zelensky, and they're not fighting it. They're not arguing with it, not shouting at it. He's talking about the Russians against the Putin government. Why aren't they fighting against it? Why are they supporting Putin? Zelensky is miffed. He doesn't know. He can't understand what's going on. This is all just too much. The Ukrainian leader insists that the only way to influence the Russians, he says, uh, is to and Vladimir Putin speaking to the Post as if he were addressing the Russian public, being an actor, he can do that. He can slip into he can slip into that role as if he was addressing the Russian public. Zelensky says to round this off, you're telling the whole world that it must live by your rules. Then go and live there, says Zelensky, in his gravelly voice that he puts on for the cameras. So he's adopted he's, this new affectation. He's got the beard, the five o'clock shadow, the gravelly voice, the green T-shirt. It's all a big act, ladies and gentlemen. He's playing a role. The world is a stage, says Shakespeare, and nobody knows that more than this two-bit third-rate actor and cabaret act, Vladimir Zelensky, hero feted by the West, will soon be out of a job, fleeing to Switzerland, Miami, London, or something like that, maybe Los Angeles. Who knows? Where is he going to end up? Nobody knows. The Ukrainian leader is at the end of his rope. So he's attacking Amnesty International, calling him a terrorist organization. He's attacking the Americans, 
calling them decadent and corrupt. Now he's saying, keep the Russians in Russia. Wow. This is music to the ears of the far-right radicals in Ukraine or Western Ukraine. The Nazi factions love this. Keep the Russians in Russia. If you, if you identify as a Russian, go live in Russia. Leave Ukraine, says Zelensky. Can you believe this guy? Unbelievable. So the, everyone seems to be in weighing in on this, and this is all permissible. It's all allowable. That kind of language would be tossed out and dismissed out of hand a couple of years ago. But such is the corruption in Washington uh, and the West and in the NATO backwater states, that this kind of passes for something allowable in 2022. How far we've, how far we've fallen from our democratic pedestal of freedom and democracy in the West. We don't have much to stand on anymore, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, look, we're going to wrap this broadcast up this week. Um, again, I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen, and a special thank you to Heiko Koo our guest in studio in our pop-up studio. We're just down the road from the Houses of Parliament in London. This has been an absolutely fantastic broadcast. Thank you, everybody, for coming along with us on this ride on this Tuesday. And we will see you on Thursday of this week. And we'll have another fantastic program lined up for you then. So stay tuned. And also check us out at 21stCenturyWired.com. Headlines are there. Segments of this show and other shows are there. Last week's Sunday Wire is there as well and more to come. Take care, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. All the best.